And Christians today need to hear that, particularly in the increasingly secular West. Christians tend to breathe in the cultural air uncritically. We wrongly assume that this is a Christian culture. Newsflash, no, it is not. If ever it was, it certainly isn't now. So don't assume that its values and presuppositions are harmless. Assume the opposite. Live in the culture, but live as an alien. Live as an honorable ambassador. Live like a good representative of the coming kingdom of God. Let people see how our way, the kingdom way, is better. Put the values of the kingdom on display and invite people to immigrate from there to here. That's the idea. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Live in the culture, but live as an alien. Live as an honorable ambassador. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Peter chapter 2. I mentioned in the last episode that in this epistle, the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of churches in modern-day northern Turkey who are just starting to endure their first experiences of persecution at the hands of their Roman friends and neighbors. This is not yet state persecution. It is not yet formal persecution. Christians are not being doused in naphtha and used as human torches in the provinces, though that will soon be taking place in the city of Rome. Thomas Schreiner right-sizes the experiences of these particular people. He says the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends, closed quote. So it's not naphtha, but it's not nothing. And, and so Peter is writing to buttress these people and to prepare them for the realities that are sure to follow. And they did follow. As we mentioned in the last episode, we believe Peter wrote this epistle in AD 63, and it was in fact in AD 112 that the first recorded incident of formal state persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire happened outside the city of Rome, and it happened in this very province. About 50 years after Peter wrote this letter, these same Christians, or perhaps their children, were investigated by Pliny the Younger on behalf of the Emperor Trajan. There were so many converts from paganism to Christianity in this area that it had actually begun to affect the local economy. And so in AD 112, Pliny was commissioned to investigate the church in Pontus Bithynia, and a significant number of Christians were executed upon confession of faith in Christ. Thankfully, however, that persecution was short-lived. Christians were very useful citizens, and Trajan decided that the empire could not afford to eradicate such useful people. So he wrote to Pliny and ordered him to cease his investigation. So these dark clouds that we're reading about in 1 Peter did, in fact, turn into a full-blown storm 50 years later. There's a lesson in there for us. Sometimes it takes a long time for discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse to turn into actual persecution. And a lot of really good ministry can be forfeited by people overreacting or over-responding to the difficulties that they face. But that's a story for another day. The important point for us here is that Peter is preparing these people for the storms that lie ahead. 
They need to grow up in a hurry if they're going to survive and thrive in the conditions that are coming. That's what this chapter is all about. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I mentioned in the last episode that in the first 12 verses of chapter 1, Peter is relaying the gospel foundation. He is reminding them of what is true and what is sure and what is solid. And then starting in verse 13 of chapter 1, he is commanding and encouraging these people on the basis of those gospel truths. That is the basic shape of most New Testament letters, and it continues to hold true here. From verse 13 of chapter 1 forward, this epistle is command or encouragement heavy. Here in these three verses, Peter is telling them how to grow up, or as the Tyndale New Testament commentary has it, how to advance in holiness. That's a good title as well. There are basically two things you've got to do, Peter says. You've got to stop doing some things, and you've got to start doing some things. You've got to turn away, and you've got to turn towards. Again, this is right in step with what you see in every New Testament letter. Sanctification is not rocket science. A lot of it comes down to where you turn your head. If you look at smut and garbage and nonsense, then you aren't going to make a lot of progress. But if you turn away from that and you look toward Christ, then you are going to make some progress. The Apostle Paul was always talking about that. He'd say, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, Colossians 3, 8. So put that stuff away, turn away from that garbage, and turn towards Christ. He'd say, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as though in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So sanctification is both a miracle and a decision. You have to decide which way you're going to turn your head. If you look at nonsense and filth, then you're going down. If you look at Christ and study the scriptures, then you're going up. The up is a miracle, but it is a miracle you have to be properly positioned to receive. Now, back to Peter. Peter says we need to look away from malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, which basically means we need to get off social media, or at least we need to be incredibly careful in how we use those things. The internet appears to have been engineered as a de-sanctifying technology, social media especially so. It stimulates malice. It seems intent on dividing us into teams and tribes. It specializes in deceit. The internet is filled with nonsense and conspiracy theory. You used to have to know something to be an expert. Now all you need is your own YouTube page. And, and social media encourages us to project an image and to maintain a brand. It stirs up envy. How come my kids don't look like that? How come I can't afford a vacation like that? And perhaps most devastating of all, the internet is a slander machine. It invites us to offer our hot takes, regardless of whether we know something to be true or not, or whether we know the person in question or not or whether we are really in a position to understand or evaluate what's actually being said or not. We just slander everyone and anyone passing us by on the internet social media highway, and it has to stop. It's absolutely inappropriate for Christians to be a part of that. 
To grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in Christian character, we need to turn away from that. You can either get off it entirely, uh, you probably should, at least for a period of time until you can develop a strategy, or you can learn to use it in a mature and Christian manner. And, and that will definitely mean using it less and intermittently. Turn away and turn toward. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow. I love what Edmund Clowney says here. He says, Christians must be addicted to the Bible, close quote. <laughs> read, read, read the Bible. Listen, listen, listen to the Bible. However you get your Bible, get lots of it. You need to be deprogrammed. We all need to be deprogrammed. We need to have the poison of the culture leached out of us and the goodness of the word of God injected into us, like a blood transfusion, out with the old and in with the new. That's how you grow as a Christian. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I think that turning away and turning toward language is really helpful and really necessary for Christians to think about, given the world that we are currently living in. You talked about turning away from social media. Is that even possible? And what would exactly would that look like? Well, as I mentioned in the program audio, it may not be possible to completely turn off social media. For, for better or worse now, it is the public square. And so we need to be there. We need to be in that world without being of that world. And that's going to be a real challenge. One of the things this pandemic has revealed is the extent to which Christian conversational norms have been completely transformed by social media culture. Christians are saying things on social media in a way that we were not saying things 20 or even 10 years ago. There is a comfort level now with dunking on people and misrepresenting people in order to advance our own arguments. And we need to repent of that immediately. Christians are supposed to be slow to speak, eager to understand, not given to anger, a whole bunch of things that social media does not encourage. So strange as it sounds, I think churches need to offer training on how to use social media without losing our souls or destroying our witness. Yeah, I totally agree. I would take that course. Yeah, me too. I mean, we're all figuring this stuff out on the fly. So there aren't actually a lot of experts out there, but I think at least the issue has come up on the radar, as it were, as something that we need to be thinking about and teaching about moving forward. Agreed. All right, let's jump back into the text now at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now go back and look at verses 4 to 5. 
Depending on your Bible translation, this might sound like a description of what is happening or an encouragement towards something that should happen. The grammar is somewhat ambiguous, meaning it could go either way. So, for example, the NRSV has here, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that's an encouragement. That's a command. Come to him. Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. It could also be understood descriptively, as in, as you come to Jesus, he is integrating you into something larger than yourself. That's how the ESV has it. That's definitely true, and it's grammatically possible. Either way, the idea here is that coming to Jesus is a personal thing. No one can do it for you, but it immediately becomes a corporate thing. You become a part of the body, or in this metaphor, you become part of a house. Now, Peter has chosen this metaphor very carefully. Remember, he's writing to a church with a majority Jewish foundation that has now become predominantly Gentile in composition. If you doubt that for a second, go back and read 1 Peter 1, 14 to 18. There's no way Peter says that to a group of Jews. So he's writing to a mixed church, a majority Gentile church. And he is saying that as they come together, they are being constituted into a new temple a new spiritual house of God. There's no doubt about that interpretation, based as it is on Peter's choice of Old Testament citation. Look at verse 6. He is quoting there from Isaiah 28, verse 6. That's a prophecy in which the prophet said to disobedient Israel that God was going to knock their house down. He was going to grind the house of Israel down to a single obedient stone and then build it up again from there. And the single obedient stone, of course, is Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus is the single remaining stone, and now everyone has to be connected to him to be included in the new construction. That's kind of the point of the entire New Testament. And that's kind of the point of the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21. The climax of which has Jesus saying in verses 42 to 43. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, closed quote. So this is Peter saying, this is that. Come to Jesus, the one remaining stone in the old house of fallen Israel, and be built back up into a whole new, marvelous, spiritual house of God. This new house of God is going to be bigger and wider than the original. Peter is making that point in verse 10. He is quoting, of course, from the book of Hosea. And he is saying, people who were once not considered the people of God are now going to be considered the people of God. The new house is going to be a mixture of Jew and Gentile. It is going to be made up of anyone who is truly connected by faith to the person and work of Christ. He is the cornerstone. If you are united with him, then you are part of this house. You are part of the priesthood. You're part of the nation. Thanks be to God. So to sum up these first 10 verses, which appear to form a bit of a unit, I think we would understand Peter as saying to these folks that 
To survive the storm that is coming, you need to turn away from some things, and you need to turn towards a few things, and you need to be integrated into the living body and spiritual house of Jesus Christ. All right, so far so good. Let's jump back into the text at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These two verses are often considered a sort of hinge. Certainly, they function as a hinge in this chapter. In the first 10 verses, Peter was talking about how to grow up. So he had them in the greenhouse, as it were. But here he's talking about how to live and serve in the big bad world outside. And from this point on in the chapter, that is clearly the focus. We're talking now about how to be a faithful Christian in a generally hostile world. So, He says here in verse 11, think of yourselves as sojourners, travelers, and exiles. You don't really live here. This world is not your home. So be careful about getting too involved in the culture. You want to have a presence, obviously. You want to have a witness. But you don't want to really live here. You don't want to be a native. So you have to find the right balance. And you have to be on guard against the corrosive influence and values of the culture. So you have to maintain a defensive posture. And Christians today need to hear that, particularly in the increasingly secular West. Christians tend to breathe in the cultural air uncritically. We wrongly assume that this is a Christian culture. (laughs) Newsflash, no, it is not. If ever it was, it certainly isn't now. So don't assume that its values and presuppositions are harmless. Assume the opposite. Live in the culture, but live as an alien. Live as an honorable ambassador. Live like a good representative of the coming kingdom of God. Let people see how our way, the kingdom way, is better. Put the values of the kingdom on display and invite people to immigrate from there to here. That's the idea. Now look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is obviously an incredibly timely passage for us. We are ambassadors of a coming kingdom. Ambassadors don't lead social uprisings. Ambassadors don't organize political protests. Ambassadors probably don't post strong opinions about political issues on their Facebook page. Can you imagine an ambassador from Japan living in the United States of America posting strong opinions on social media about an issue of political controversy? he or she would be immediately recalled. Or can you imagine an ambassador from Finland openly campaigning for the Democratic candidate for president? Or the ambassador from New Zealand openly campaigning for the Republican candidate for governor in the state of California? Such things simply are not done. Peter is saying that as we go out into the big bad world, we need to remember who we are and where we come from. We need to do good. 
We need to represent our kingdom. We need to showcase our freedom, not to vomit all of our ideas into the public square. We want to showcase our freedom from so many of the divisions and hostilities and lusts and ambitions and animosities that are tearing this present world apart. So enter in carefully. Speak carefully and respectfully. Speak out of your identity as a Christian and try to avoid taking sides in civil wars and native conflicts. As any wise visitor or sojourner or ambassador would be sure to do. That's the general idea here. And now in the following several paragraphs, he begins to address the application of this principle to some rather hard cases. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So even servants, the Greek word is oikote, which refers to household or domestic servants, most of whom would have, in fact, been slaves. So even if you are a household slave, Peter says, don't use your gospel freedom to rise up and rebel against your master. Rather, willingly submit, intentionally show honor, mindful of God, mindful of the ultimate mission, because after all, that is what Christianity is all about. It isn't about fighting for political and social justice, not directly. You see, the problem is that political and social change, if that's all you achieve, will inevitably underdeliver. You have to change the heart. It isn't merely the abolition of a corrupt institution that brings about change. It is a change in the people who populate and control those institutions. And that is what the gospel uniquely targets. The gospel undermines from below. And Peter has the audacity to call upon slaves to participate willingly in this much slower, much riskier approach. But he feels he can do that because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus endured maximum injustice and maximum mistreatment in order to bring us to God. He did this to set an example for us that we might follow in his steps. He continues to outline and commend the example of Christ in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Remember how Jesus saved and changed you, Peter says. Not by fighting the system, not by attacking structures. Jesus saved you by enduring injustice. Jesus saved you by absorbing hostility and abuse. Jesus saved you by bearing your sins in his body 
on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. That's the gospel. That's the Christian way. Now walk ye in it. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to go back to what Peter says in verses 13 to 15. He says here, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, end quote. Did that verse fall out of the Bible over the last year or so? Because it seems like we've been arguing about something the Bible is actually pretty clear on. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think you're reading it right. But of course, it's always easier to believe things when those beliefs aren't being tested. But all of a sudden now, they are being tested. Under pressure, we have to decide, do we really believe that Christians are supposed to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake and for the sake of our witness. Do we believe that even when it's going to cost us? But to be fair, there are limitations to that principle too, are there not? Yeah, absolutely. In Acts 5, when the apostles are told not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, they say famously, we must obey God rather than men. So over the course of Christian history, we've generally said that Christians are supposed to submit to the government up until the point where the government commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands. If that happens, then we obey God rather than men. But up until then, we submit to the government for the sake of God and for the sake of our witness. Yeah, wow. It is amazing how timely and relevant this letter is to our times and challenges. I know we're going to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 